Traditional advertising has long been a key way for organizations to get their message out. Like so much else, the world is changing. On this episode, the Chief Marketing Officer of MasterCard, with this invitation, move beyond advertising and towards engagement. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 521. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. There's so much about the world that has been changing in recent years, and one of the key things that's been changing so much is how we approach marketing. Today's guest is going to challenge us to think about marketing in new ways, but not just marketing, really looking at it more holistically. I'm so glad to welcome Raja Raja Manar to the show today. He is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for MasterCard and President of the company's healthcare business. He also serves as President of the World Federation of Advertisers. With more than 30 years as a global executive, Raja has held C-level roles at firms ranging from Anthem to Humana, and has overseen the successful evolution of MasterCard's identity for the digital age, from its priceless experiential platforms to marketing-led business models. His work has been featured in Harvard Business School and Yale School of Management case studies, and been taught at more than 40 top management schools around the world. He is the author of Quantum Marketing, Mastering the New Marketing Mindset for Tomorrow's Consumers. Raja, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Dave, thank you so very much for having me on your show. I'm delighted to be here and to share a few thoughts. One of the distinctions you make in the book is uh, between the terms loyalty and affinity. And a lot of companies have loyalty programs, but you invite us to think about the word affinity more. And I'm wondering if you could break that down a bit of that distinction today. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, So firstly, you know, the genesis to all this is, you know, I was trying to one day sit together, sit and put together these stats for the industry as to where exactly the marketing dollars go. They are well in excess of a trillion dollars. In fact, WFA, which is the World Federation of Advertisers, their collective membership spends more than a trillion dollars. And I was just wondering, where is this trillion dollars going on an annual basis that all the brands are spending? One of the big areas is loyalty. I said, wow, that's fascinating. And around the same time, I came across an article on bbc.com. And when I looked, read that article, it said that in a relationship, either a formal committed relationship like a marriage or a living relationship, they said that 70% plus of all the people in a relationship have admitted to having cheated on their partners. Wow. Now, I'm not here to make a value judgment about it, but it set me thinking, saying that, okay, let me start digging into this space and see, because in the context of either a marriage or a committed relationship of some sorts or the other, A, there is a commitment, explicit or implicit, and B, there is a consequence, a consequence of not being loyal. So which means if you are, you know, there could be a reputational consequence, there could be financial consequence, there could be emotional consequence to the people that he or she cares about. 
So in spite of making the commitments and knowing the consequences, people are still not loyal. An overwhelming majority are not loyal in their personal lives. So as marketers, how wise are we in assuming that we run loyalty programs and that makes people become loyal to our brands? And if you look at the entire hierarchy of people uh, in their lives, we, the commercial entities or the commercial brands, actually feature somewhere way down in the hierarchy. So I think it's quite, I think, unwise for us to assume that people will be loyal to us or to our brands. And therefore, we need to really look at it from a completely different perspective. The key thing is, if people are not wired for loyalty, at least to the commercial uh, uh, brands and entities for sure, that doesn't take away the need of brands to have a stickiness with the consumers, with their consumers, right? So you need to find a way of how you hold on to them. Now, that is what I call as more an affinity that you're creating. There is some kind of a bonding, but there is no commitment of loyalty. So they are leaning more towards your brand on the one hand, and you need to then have a platform, which I call the contextual preference models or platforms. Basically, you try to get in front of consumer in an appropriate way and influence that consumer to take a decision in favor of your brand when they are just about to make that decision. So the contextuality is important and the ability to influence them in favor of your brand is what you strive for. Now, this is how you really need to look at it. And it's winning every single time at every point of interaction, as opposed to throwing a lot of money and saying that now we are running loyalty programs. So I think the traditional way of thinking about loyalty has to totally alter. I I really love that invitation. And I think the analogy to our most important and committed relationships for most people of spouses and partners uh, is just such a helpful one. If people struggle there, imagine how little care sometimes there is to loyalty. And I, I, I love the thing that Gary Vaynerchuk says often of making the point to businesses of, these aren't your customers, you don't own them, right? It really is up to us as businesses, organizations, marketers to continually really influence that relationship and, and make that more of an affinity thing versus assuming loyalty or assuming ownership. And this actually brings me to something else that I want to ask you about in the book. You are, as I mentioned in the introduction, the president of the World Federation of Advertisers. And you write this in the book. You say, to my team members, I keep saying that advertising is dead. Well, it's not entirely dead, but the way we know it today, it is certainly heading that way. That's an extraordinary statement from you. What is different today? about advertising? So firstly, let's start with the World Federation of Advertisers, right? Of which I serve as their president in a voluntary role. Now, WFA, well, the name says it's World Federation of Advertisers. It's a complete marketing organization. So they do everything end-to-end, and advertising is one important component of it. Now, when I look at advertising, you know, take the experience. So I'm sitting in front of my computer or my iPad, whatever, very, very annoyingly, every three minutes, an ad comes in. Now, for example, I'm listening to a song from Bollywood as an example. 
actually the song is interrupted <laughs> right in the middle mm. for the advertisement to be served to me. And that's ex- ex- absolutely annoying and irritating. Now, what do I do? I'm just waiting for when that skip ad button comes up to click on it. I'm just waiting for that, right? For the five seconds or whatever the time is. Now, to make my life more miserable, YouTube has introduced two ads, not one. They say one off two and two off two. So I have to do it twice now. And in some cases, they don't let me forward it either. Now, that is a horrible experience to me as a consumer, as a normal person. Now, a couple of things. Of course, as a provider of platforms, you can always argue there is no free lunch and you are actually giving your attention. I understand the logic and the rationale from the platform's side. But as a consumer, that doesn't help me. My experience is lousy. You as marketers are telling me that my experience matters to you. You want to give me a seamless, frictionless, delightful experience. And what I'm experiencing here is anything but. I don't care what your reasons are and the rationale is. Right? Now, when consumers are feeling this way, what's happening is, A lot of studies have shown that the advertisement time is used by people to do something else. They either go to uh, for a bio break or they are doing their emails or sending some quick text messages. And when the program resumes, they are back to the uh, screen. So this is one part of it, which is they are actually tuning out of the ads. The second thing is on the digital devices, particularly this is happening more in Asia, for example, people are installing ad blockers on their devices at scale. This is not just some geeks and nerds who are just putting those ad blockers because only they understand. You're talking of the ad blocker numbers today, estimates ranging from 600 million on the lower side and 2 billion on the higher side. Wow. Assuming even if the reality is it's only 600 million or 650 million, those many number of places or people are not accessible to marketers anymore. So what are they saying? They're saying you marketing pests I'm sick and tired of you. I'm putting my ad blockers, even if I have to miss some some content, because I'm so sick and tired of your advertisements, on the one hand. Secondly, about three weeks back, or whenever it was, you know, so Netflix, take Netflix, for example. Netflix has already crossed 200 million subscribers. These 200 million subscribers are watching more than a billion and a half hours of content every single week, collectively, the whole community. Now, that amount of time, they don't get to see a single ad. It is an ad-free heaven for them. And that space or that time is lost to marketers to advertise because platforms like Netflix or you know, Hulu Premium or Amazon Prime or even YouTube Premium, whatever they call it now, they are all ad-free. And people are willing to pay money <laughs> to be in those ad-free environments, right? Yeah. So my point is advertising the way we know it is dead. We have to evolve. We have to move on. And we have to figure out new ways of connecting with consumers, new ways of communicating, because the need to communicate has not disappeared, but the methodology has to evolve, which it has not. This is one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you, because this, of course, begs the question, well, if not the traditional advertising, then what? Because I think so many of us have had that experience. In fact, as you were talking, I was thinking of the ad blockers installed on all our devices and how many services we pay for to avoid the traditional advertising. And yet, I think in a lot of organizations that haven't necessarily thought about the what's next, they get that, that that's maybe not the model that's going to go forward, and yet they're not sure where to start. And one of the distinctions that I love that you make is the distinction between storytelling 
and story making. Tell me about those two words. Right. So when you look at advertising, advertising is essentially about you telling the story of your brand or of your company in a way that the consumer cares about and is impacted and influenced by. Storytelling is very powerful if you tell the story the right way and if the consumer is willing to listen to your story. So advertising in its best form is storytelling. Story making, on the other hand, is where consumer becomes a part of the story. They create their own story. They create their own narrative. For example, when a consumer goes to a beautiful event or goes to a fantastic location, they come back with rich memories, great experiences, and they cannot wait to tell those stories to their network whether it is friends or family or office colleagues or on their social network, wherever. People want to share the good things that are happening, the good experiences that they're going through, et cetera. So what, in fact, uh, I did this at MasterCard about eight years back, is we said, okay, we start, need to start readjusting our budgets away from traditional advertising and get into experiential marketing. So we said, let's actually get into story making, which is curate and create experiences that are truly delightful to the, to the consumers, our customers. When they have that delightful experience, they will tell their story. When they tell their story, you enable them to tell the story better on the one hand, and then you amplify their stories. Now, when they are telling their stories, people are not going to block them off in their own network. So therefore, you don't have these issues of ad blocks and things like that. Now, the second part of it is when you amplify it appropriately, that story reaches in a beautiful way and people can absolutely relate to it. You know, in fact, they, they say that when you watch beautiful experiences, you vicariously also get some of that pleasure. That's the reason why we actually watch videos in the first place and look into the lives of other people, whether they are real or fictional. So this is the hypothesis with which we started. And we started doing more and more as we have started seeing more and more results. And to an extent where our brand started growing from strength to strength. And today we are a top 10 brand in the world as measured by Brand Z. So I have got in my own context, empirical evidence to show that when you are putting your efforts behind story making, you can create a profound shift in your brand perceptions and in the preference people have towards your brand. So this is what I say from storytelling, move to story making. But this is just one methodology, which is story making. There could be so many other ways. And I'll just give you one example, right? So many people actually ask me, well, how many experiences can you create? Is it economical? Is it scalable? Is it sustainable? The answer to all this is yes, 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 yes. We say, for example, we have got a beautiful event, Grammy Awards. So we invite a lot of consumers, card members to Grammy Awards to go and experience it, et cetera. And we make that experience so special, we give them the red carpet walk. We take their photos on the red carpet. And then we have got you know, some opportunity for them to maybe potentially take pictures with some celebrities or go backstage experiences. We do a whole bunch of things. And then we are taking, we are capturing all those moments and memories and give it to them when they are leaving. So they are, then they go all over the social media in their own networks. And then we amplify it. Now, particularly when you are, doing a fundamental pivot towards story making, the three factors you have to consider are how scalable is it? Can I really create experiences? In advertising, I reach hundreds of millions of people, in fact, billions of people around the world, right? 
we have got 2.2 billion consumers around the world who has a MasterCard. So we're talking at massive scale. Can we create experiences at scale? The answer is, yes, we are. And these experiences can be digital experiences. They can be physical experiences. And they can be vicarious experiences, which means you are witnessing somebody else who you know and seeing their experience and feel a part of that joy. And it works. We have got actually some little bit of a nice, interesting modeling around how the whole thing works and it's proprietary to MasterCard. The second thing, likewise, what we also talk about is when you see the economies. Now, the economies are actually, we do a ROI measurement very regularly and see, okay, what is the ROI on a typical advertising campaign? What's the ROI on a typical experiential campaign? And you look at the whole thing and it is pretty positive and very advantageous. So that's why we are able to sustain that. So it has got a good return. And the last one is, particularly after the pandemic, we have really jumped a lot more into digital because all the physical experiences are gone. So we would now bring, for example, a cooking lesson with a celebrity chef to your home. Or we have got, you have got a chat with somebody like a Kamela Cabello. Or there is an impromptu concert by one of our ambassadors who actually comes in and you know, onto your screens in your home and then do the concert in front of you. Now, we started actually changing the whole nature. And what we realized is we did not anticipate before to the same level, pre-COVID, the impact that digital experiences can have. And that's absolutely fantastic. So much so that you might be sitting in India and you might be experiencing something in Brazil. And I think that technology has really enabled us. And I think the pandemic has actually propelled us into this digital era, like probably otherwise it would have taken 10, 15 years for us more if life were to go normally. But in a situation where everyone was locked in it, they're locked on at their homes, I think they all took to the screens and we found that this is something which could really work very well. And it has been. So I would say that this is one very effective way of story making instead of doing the traditional storytelling. It's really an interesting paradox when you think about it. Uh, on one hand, we have all of these devices all of these Internet of Things, things in a lot of our homes, uh, the ability to connect digitally and for organizations and marketers potentially to track that and to have data and all the things that are available now. And yet, the power still, perhaps more than ever now, of word of mouth. And you refer to word of mouth uh, in the book as back to the future <laughs> in a way, right? Because we have been so interrupted by so many different ads and devices that the word-of-mouth experience is, is still so powerful, isn't it? Absolutely, Dave. In fact, some of the principles that people work on or have been working on, they continue to be timeless. They continue to be relevant even today. The act of friendship, the act of sharing stories, these things, they just remain. In the olden days, like if you remember the Tupperware parties, where all you're doing is it was a physical social media, if you were to think about it, and you're creating a joint experience for all of those people. And then you hope that people then will start spreading word of mouth. Now, word of mouth today is also having a very new name called influencer marketing, right? You don't want just a person who has got you know uh, a great experience or, a, or information about something to keep it to himself or herself, but you would want them to spread. And if that individual has a massive network he or she is called an influencer and marketers are leveraging. So it is nothing but the word of mouth, the word of mouth of the old world. In the digital world, it is on steroids. So your point is absolutely spot on. Word of mouth is very much here. 
It is interesting as as much as things have changed, how much has stayed the same and we think about marketing and influence. And this actually leads me to wonder about something you mentioned in the book as well around story making is the importance of whatever that experience is, that the brand being associated with that in a very natural and unforced manner. So the consumer being able to make a connection between the experience and the brand. And I imagine there's a real art to doing that. And for an organization or leader who has maybe not done something like that before of doing story making and thinking about a way to really integrate their brand in a natural way, where do you invite people to start? So I would say that firstly, people have to really have a clear picture of what their brand should stand for and what aspects or attributes of the brand you know, are actually going to be at play when, they're in, when the brand is interacting with the consumer through these experiences. That is most important. Number two, if your brand, for example, let's take a, a scenario. If you are into a product like uh, vitamin supplements, okay, and you are a small company and you want to curate experiences, now you need to see what is the relevance of what you're offering to what your brand stands for. So if you're a small company and you say, okay, I have got some money to throw and I want to go and give some you know, Grammy Awards, I'll buy a few experiences at Grammy Awards and then make them available to my consumers, assuming that they can afford it. They need to first ask, is it really relevant? And does it, do they gel? You use the beautiful word, which is, is it forced or is it unforced? It has to be unforced. It has to be natural. It has to feel native. Otherwise, it will be jarring. The whole idea is not just to put your brand label on top of an experience. That doesn't work. The people will very quickly forget the brand because the two are not naturally gelling. And they remember the experience, though. So there are a lot of times you can say, oh, that advertisement was beautiful, but I don't remember which was the brand which put out that ad. Uh, but yeah. that ad was fantastic, right? The people say that. And same thing is true for experiences as well. So my point would be that fit between the brand values, brand attributes, and the experiences that you are selecting is very critical. They have to mesh, they have to mesh in, in a very seamless, beautiful, natural, native kind of a fashion. I'll give you again my uh, company's example. Please. At MasterCard, we say priceless is something which you know we have been consistently sticking around with that phrase or with that word priceless as the soul of our brand or the spirit of our brand. Right? It's no more than 24 years since it has been around and we are consistently investing behind it. So our whole approach is we want to create and curate experiences that truly are priceless. Priceless does not mean expensive and unaffordable. Priceless means it's the quality and the memorability, the uniqueness. Okay, those are kind of characteristics which define what is priceless. So we started, for example, one of those early areas of experiences. We said people love food. So if people love food, can MasterCard actually be in the space of food? Now, if you were to be literal, people will say, what, you're now going to create edible credit cards? No, that's not <laughs> what we are trying to do. What we are trying to do is curate culinary experiences that are superb, once-in-a-lifetime kind of culinary experiences. So we started our very first culinary experience was in Manhattan, in Times Square, where we put a platform on top of a billboard right in front of Times Square. And on top of that platform, which was very safely and securely positioned, so it doesn't fall off, 
And there, we put up a table. We call it the priceless table. And we had people come and have a five-course Michelin-star curated meal there, a lunch and two dinners. And uh, we, we made sure that each one of those tables had a celebrity to make the experience even more unique. Now, you don't imagine normal life that you are sitting on top of a billboard and eating it. it. Some might think it is silly. Some might think it is cool. So we had to be appropriate in terms of targeting as well, who we are actually trying to impress upon. Now, we launched that, and then we ran it for about six days, I believe. Sold out. Every single one of them sold out in a matter of a few minutes. And then we had all the televisions coming in the morning, and Good Morning America, and all these folks taking videos, and then say, oh, MasterCard has put up this. So we were getting a lot of earned media in that sense on one level, but the people who actually had their meal and all, they were going gaga about it. So today you talk after seven years, they will still talk about it. They say, well, what a cool experience it was. It was very unusual, right? In an open space on top of a platform uh, in Times Square, looking at the traffic go by and with the celebrity at your table and you're having a fantastic meal, et cetera. That was some, the beginning. And from then on, they started getting in. And now we have got thousands and thousands of experiences not just culinary, across all categories of experiences, literally thousands and thousands of them around the world. And people celebrate those. They love those. And in fact, some of those consumers who have been at these events, they sort of get together and form their own social media groups and they keep exchanging, oh, what other priceless experience did you have? What other experience I had? And then exchange notes and then plan for the next experiences and so on. It generates a whole movement unto itself, not as a social movement and a societal good kind of movement. I don't mean to mix those things up, but there is momentum. Probably that's a better word. There's momentum behind the whole thing. So throughout, there is a subtle infusion of MasterCard in every aspect of that experience from the dresses the people wear who are serving the chef, the coasters look like MasterCard logo. And everything about there, the colors that we use are the MasterCard colors. The flowers that we put, are they red and yellow flowers next to each other, like two circles of MasterCard? Meaning the team thinks through such a painful detail, I would say, to bring our brand out beautifully, aesthetically, in a pleasing fashion, and at the same time, unmistakably MasterCard. And that's what actually got uh, made into some case studies at Harvard Business School and Yale and being taught at multiple schools. We call it uh, multi-sensory marketing. So these are the kind of things that we are doing. And I would say this is probably the kind of approach that other companies have to explore from the point of suitability to their brand and see what kind of experiences they can offer and then do it. There is so many cool things with the multi-sensory experience that you talk about in the book that I would really invite people to to dive in on, especially if this is something your organization is thinking about. And I want to ask you something about that experience you mentioned is I know there are people listening who say, wow, you know, that is so cool. And yet I work for a really small organization and maybe our entire marketing strategy has been, let's run a few ads on Facebook or whatever in the past. If someone is there and they're thinking about how do I really start to create stories and experiences for the people that we serve and to begin that journey of story making, what is something you've seen a small organization do to just start, get started on making that shift that's worked really well? So I would say there are multiple routes that one can pursue to succeed. One could be, for example, partnership. 
So as many of the times, for example, MasterCard, we don't do things alone by ourselves. We do many actually in partnership with some of the brand or some of the company, right? You cannot do all everything by yourself. So if a company is small, they can latch on to a large brand without getting completely overwhelmed and overpowered by the other brand in its presence, right? Is it possible or is it fictional? It is possible, number one. Number two, in fact, depending on which markets they are, for example, trying to reach, like I can tell you, you know, one of the ways that experiences can be curated could be as simple as organizing a Habitat for Humanity experience where you're building a house for the underprivileged or in some place where people have lost their homes or whatever, right? Experience is not all about self-indulgence. It can be an experience where you're doing something for somebody and that can be profoundly impactful. Like, you know, getting together a bunch of people and say, hey, in this community, we want to create a small play park for kids and put a few equipment there, et cetera. Raise funds for that if, if you don't have enough marketing dollars and create that park. Municipalities will be very happy because their parks are not necessarily all the time in the best of the shapes. And they will say, oh yeah, here is somebody coming along. Let's upgrade it in exchange for a small level of branding there. Capture today, thanks to the technology, the entire, the making of this children's park, for example, can all be captured on, so, on, on a camera, put it in bits and bytes on social media and request influencers. So particularly when your cause is socially driven, your business objective is not necessarily philanthropic, but the cause that you are actually credibly and legitimately and appropriately associating with, if it is social, there are many influencers who will be very happy to give their time and even put in a couple of words or tweets on the social media, say hey, that that particular brand has done an amazing job in this particular community. Look at the kind of difference. That could be one way, simple way, uh, where a small brand can get itself well-noticed, actually make a real difference, endear itself to the community, and at the same time, get wider publicity or earned media as well. This is just one kind of a route, right? So there are so many ways that you can actually do it, and not everything is expensive. So that's why I keep telling, marketing is not about big dollars. Thanks to technology today, the field of marketing has got so democratized that even if you're a small company, you can compete very strongly and on an equal footing compared to a large company, which has got scale, brand recognition, but they also have got legacy mindsets and legacy bureaucracies that they need to deal with. So from all those perspectives, what I would say is that companies are small companies, small and medium establishments. They should not look at marketing as a non-starter. What they should also look at is in this day and age, marketing can be a huge differentiator for them. It can be a huge competitive advantage for them. And they can actually take shares from large companies effectively. And it gets back to what you were talking about earlier with affinity and just purpose. And if you can capture that well, uh, there's so many things that that opens up. And it's not just about dollars. It's about the real passion behind it and making the world a better place. And there's so many opportunities for so many of us to do that if we're just willing to do some creative thinking on that. Raja, this is so helpful. I so appreciate the book because it taught me a lot about what organizations are doing on marketing. And as I read the book, I thought, wow, this is the next five to 10 years for sure of where we're heading in how we think about marketing. So two invitations I'd make for everyone listening. First of all, if you're in a marketing function, absolutely, this is the book to read, Quantum Marketing. And secondly, even if you're not, I think that 
this book is really a wonderful overview of everything going on in the space right now. And really, I think will allow a lot of leaders to enter into a conversation about marketing with a lot more confidence, but also some really practical ways to go. And as uh, actually, Raja, Bonnie, and I use MasterCard. And the very first time I got our MasterCard six months ago, I noticed the Sonic branding that you're doing, which is one of the things you talk about in the book. It's fascinating how much that you can really do as an organization um, and take practical steps. So before I let you go, Raja, I would love to ask you one other question. You are absolutely a leader in this space. You have uh, you know, been an influencer to so many in thinking about marketing effectively and holistically how to influence the world well. As you have written this book, as you have been talking to people about it in the last year or two, what have you changed your mind on? See, I would say that I have sort of noticed a huge spike in terms of things like mental wellness or lack thereof. And I sort of realized that many of the people, you know, mental illnesses, of course, some are very medically driven, but a lot of it is actually based on stress, based on your diet, based on your lifestyle. What is sort of staring in the face is that how people are probably single-mindedly focused on some aspects of their life mostly work because that's something which is absolutely critical for your livelihood. For most of us, it is. And what I think is, you know, in, in more of the Eastern cultures, this is more evident where they actually talk about focusing on your whole life. You don't anchor your entire life around work. Even if your livelihood depends on it, you don't anchor your life on your work. That doesn't mean you neglect your work. You put work where it belongs. Your work is to support life. Your life has to be holistic. It has to be wholesome. It is so rich and varied, it's almost a pity if most of the life gets taken by work alone, right? So I think people have to genuinely, genuinely do certain introspection, get into things like mindfulness and meditation. They should think about the kind of diet that they're having because your diet actually affects not only your physical well-being and your health, but also mental well-being and health. And I think so my point to say this is how neglected this whole field is of how to live life in a wholesome fashion. It is stunning. And I think people have to really start noticing and then taking care of it. So that's one big shift in perspective for me because you know I used to take it for granted coming from a different background and I have been meditating for uh, God knows how many years now. And I do yoga every day. So these have been a part of my life and I just take it and then and I'll, uh, go with it. But when I started looking at some of the stats and all, I said, my God, if only people do some of these things, they can help themselves without resorting to medicines. And they don't even get into those situations in the first place. So that's, that's one big thing I would say. Raja Raja Manar is the author of Quantum Marketing, Mastering the New Marketing Mindset for Tomorrow's Consumers. Raja, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you, Dave. Much appreciate again having me and uh, please stay safe and be well. If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them on the closely related topic of sales is episode 299, How to Lead Top-Line Growth with Tim Sanders. In that conversation, Tim and I talk about deal storming, his most recent book, on sales and the process that many organizations are following today in order to engage 
customers well, both leading into and also after actually making the sale. And our traditional view of sales is that it's a lone wolf salesperson who is working alone or mostly alone to start the process and finish it and then hand it off to someone else. And really, a lot of organizations are not working that way, at least not effectively anymore. Episode 299 is an introduction on how to think about sales a little differently in your organization. I'd also recommend episode 381, Serving Others Through Marketing with Seth Godin. No conversation about marketing is complete without Seth's wisdom. Many of his principles and ethics have guided me and our business over the years, and you'll hear many echoes of permission, marketing, and so many of the other principles that Seth teaches in Raj's book as well. That's episode 381. And also recommended is episode 484, Where to Start on Subscriptions, with Robbie Kelman Baxter. On that episode, we talked about the new trend, it's not as new anymore, on companies and organizations moving to subscription models. Uh, Certainly you and your family have noticed this pattern, and it has been a big change and shift in the last five to 10 years of how businesses are engaging customers and continuing that relationship. Robbie is an expert on how businesses can utilize subscriptions in their work and in their strategy. Episode 484 is the starting point for that. And then finally, I'd recommend an episode that I aired on Dave's journal a while back that's titled, If You Build It, They Will Come. That's a message we have heard many times in popular culture. It is a myth, and it is really not the way to approach engaging and building a business and engaging with customers. Uh, And I explain why in that episode. You can find it linked up on the episode notes All of those you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. We have a section for sales and selling. We also have a section for marketing. Many other conversations that we've aired over the years on both of those topics and many more. If you have not yet set up your free membership to access all of the past episodes searchable by topic, I'd invite you to do so. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and in a few seconds, you'll be off and running in the full interface of our library accessing episodes searchable by topic, as I mentioned, and also full access to my own personal library, all of the interview notes, including the notes from Raj's book, and of course, the weekly leadership guide, which comes to your inbox every Wednesday, including the most important links from every episode and all of the resources I've been finding online for you all week. All of that at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership and you'll be off and running. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Michael Hyatt back to the show. He is going to be teaching us how high achievers can start to find balance. Join me for that conversation with Michael next week. Have a great week, and I'll see you on Monday.